Welcome back to the host dispatch. Yay. <laughs> um, we have a very special episode for you all today. We're going to be interviewing our forthcoming poet, author of Threesome and the Last Toyota Celica and Other Circus Tricks, M. Mick Powell. Emic Powell's pronouns she, they, is a queer Cape Verdean femme, a poet, an artist, and most importantly, an Aries. Their poems have been nominated for the Best of the Net Anthology and a Pushcart Prize and appear in Muzzle, Frontier Poetry, Up the Staircase Quarterly, and elsewhere. A 2023 Tin House resident and professor of gender and sexuality studies, Mick enjoys chasing waterfalls and being in love. You can follow Mick online at mickpowellpoet.com and on Instagram at mickmixmagic.art. Please welcome and Mick Powell. Welcome to the podcast, Mick. Hi, everybody. Hi, Claire. Hi, Anar. I'm so happy to be here with y'all today. This is so exciting. We are so excited as well. We'll be saying that a lot. Um, we were even saying it before this recording on our last episode. <laughs> so this is truly a dream. Thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. And like, same, I'll probably just keep saying it over and over. Like, this is so awesome. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Wow. I also can't believe we're here, like at this point in time, honestly, it's so wild. It's really wild. It's wild that we're all holding your book in our hands. It I felt know. like it was such a long time coming and then it was here so fast. Mm -hmm. All that good Aries, Leo, Sag energy yes. <laughs> came through for us yeah. and this fiery little book yeah. is here. So we're really excited to really get to dig in and discuss Threesome in the Last Toyota Celica and other circus tricks. Yeah, me too. I'm pumped. I have a lot to say about this book, a lot to say about the poems in it, Mick, but I think that the first thing people mm. are going to be intrigued by is the title. And I was wondering if you mind discussing that title with us a little bit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Certainly. Yeah, I can definitely talk about the title. This book has existed in like various iterations. And I think when I sat down to revise and look at the title really closely, I was interested in having a title with an evocative image. And so when I was looking through the poems in the collection, I think lyrically and then imagistically, that was the, the image that stood out to me. Um, specifically just the threesome in the last Toyota Celica. I remember when I wrote that line specifically, I was like walking my dog and it literally just popped into my mind and it was something that was sort of sticking with me and so yeah again when I was thinking about how to revise the title and what work the title can do I wanted to have something that was again evocative um but also that spoke to what felt sort of surreal about the collection mm. um and I think the circus tricks sort of subtitle gives at that as well. And yeah, I think that this is like a series of circus tricks. And the, the threesome in the last year of Celica being, of course, a circus trick itself. Um, I think also where that line comes from in the book, where it's situated, also makes clear the sort of theme that I'm trying to articulate around 
desire, girlhood, Mm -hmm. these formative experiences, and then how those formative experiences show up or take space in our like adult lives in different ways. Um, So yeah, I think with the subtitle too, there's just like this extension from beyond this particular moment and, and outward. Yeah, I'm so intrigued by the idea of circus tricks as form. Yeah. I think that's where my mind likes to go. Mm. But I also think the combination of circus tricks and the threesome and that sort of playful sexiness Um. of it, for the first few weeks of working on it, I had failed to recognize the importance of the last Toyota Celica mm-hmm. and what that meant, that word last. And mm-hmm. um, I know we had a chance to talk about it just a little bit, but there's almost an apocalyptic theme in the book as well. And I find that really fascinating paired with this idea of desire and mm-hmm. a sexual identity or just an identity in general and how that kind of can flower and burgeon and become in the midst of you know death and destruction yeah yeah that's why I really love one of the opening epigraphs of Sadia Hartman quote where where and where she says she was hovering at the end of the world and she welcomed it like, you know, when I read that line, and it comes from that chapter in Intimate History on Slavery and Freedom, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like, when I when I read that particular excerpt, yeah, the apocalyptic nature of it being at the end of the world, but also recognizing that, maybe relishing in that, right? There's some sort of like, a comfort, I don't know if that's morbid, but there's some sort of <laughs> comfort that comes from recognizing that we are closer to the end of the world than we would probably like to be but like mm. I think that um I, I disagree with every with what you were just saying about the last part in the in the title um you know thinking about the Toyota Celica you know specifically as a discontinued car but then also like that this could be potentially read as like maybe the last car on earth mm. you know in a in a certain way yeah I love that yeah the the title's drumming up a lot of a lot of excitement. Um, and I'm really, obviously, we're all very confident that it's going to deliver on the vastness of what the title carries. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm really excited for for everyone to receive their orders. At the point of when this was recorded, we had just shipped out um, over 50 copies of Threesome and people are going to have some really good mail days in the next day or two. <laughs> Yes, yes, they are. Folks, please be excited because they're going to be gorgeous. Like the books themselves are so gorgeous. The artwork is so gorgeous. The packaging is so gorgeous. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the cover. (laughs) I'm working from the outside in, as you can tell. So Anar is our brilliant cover designer and graphic artist at Host Publications. And as... It tends to happen with our chat books, Anar, you made so many beautiful options and we ended up going wholeheartedly with the first one that you made, uh, which is such an interesting phenomenon to me. So I'll let you two go from there, but uh, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's always really tough. Um, so Mick is an artist in their own right, working with digital collage art and perhaps maybe even some other mediums that I'm not too familiar with yet. 
but it's always hard because when you're making art for another artist, it's it's a performance of a lifetime. <laughs> but Mick did a really great job of providing me with like a lookbook or a mood board. A mood board. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And so what were some of the images that you provided me with, Mick? There was cherries. Yes, cherries. I just want to say quickly that stellar performance. I mean, Anar, you did a fantastic <laughs> job. I mean, I couldn't have dreamed of a better cover. But um, yeah, the, the mood board included cherries. I was thinking of candy, right? Or some sort of sweet, sort of like a Y2K feel a little bit to it. Like, I think there was like a, a weird image of like a Nokia, like yeah. cell phone. Um, and some sort of like psychedelic kind of colors. Something about, it felt like a complicated kind of girlhood yeah. mood board in some ways. Yeah. But that's, your mood board really captured like the range of your work and the depth of ideas and emotions and there was like decades captured within the mood board there was mm -hmm. um a burlesque dancer from maybe the 1940s mm -hmm. even in the mood board it had a y2k feel and then all the while like still mature and sexy yeah. and then a little apocalyptic in some ways too um but if you're holding this book or if you've Googled the cover, um, you are going to notice that we went with a like a crushed candy effect, which I really think captures so much of what I've, you know, just said that your mood board carried, which was, you know, there's a bit of destruction. There's something very sweet and young, um, but it's also like an old timey candy, like hard candy. But yeah, it was... It was really fun to make such a scope and variation of covers for you um, because it really could have been like almost anything based on like how inspired and fueled and excited that your work makes me. I describe it to other people that it's like energizing instead of mm -hmm. soul sucking, which not that every... <laughs> Book of poetry I've ever read is soul sucking or anything, but there's a magic or an enchantment to, to your work that like generates mm. energy in the body. Um, mm. The first time that I read your manuscript, I jumped up from my couch and was like, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is the manuscript that we're going to publish next. Um, yeah, it was like an exaltation. You can only talk about threesome in the last Toyota Celica with exclamation points at the end. <laughs> and so, yeah, it it gave me a lot of energy and inspiration to to create different mock-ups and variations for your for your cover. Oh, thank you so much, Anar. That's so sweet. Thank you for all of that. That was so kind. Um I I love the process of like working with you on the covers and all of the mock-ups. I mean, I jump for joy as well, just like receiving those and just going through them and sharing them with everyone I could share them with who <laughs> would listen to me, like talk about the different covers. I loved everything that you just said about the cover that we landed on with the crushed candy. And what I also love about the cover is that it like points to the oral fixation, which I think comes up in different ways in the in the book. 
and I love yes. the texture of the the lollipop like the fracturing of it I really really love that and I would love to talk about like the covers that you that you designed but I also would like you know even pointing to the back cover right mm-hmm. and the narrative I think that the that the series of suckers kind of shows is so cool like it's so dope it's the coolest thing it's like not only the front cover but it's also like it's such a the cover and the artwork and holding and seeing the book in and of itself is such an experience and an exclamation point in lots of different ways yeah yeah I love this we're really grateful to just to hold your your work in our hands um but we really just feel so lucky that we get to do bound chapbooks. You know, we really think that this is something that can live on someone's shelf for an extended period of time. And that's really important. Um, we we believe in the chapbook and we really do feel so lucky that we get to publish your work and that it gets to live and be held by others and that it like looks appealing We haven't taken it to the market yet, but we have a feeling that this blue is going to like get people to float towards us. We've seen it happen with other vibrant colored covers. Um, It's really amazing what Mm. color can do to the psyche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the colors of, of the book. Yeah, the red also feels very connected to the fiery nature um like you know it could be strawberry watermelon but I'm gonna say it's a cherry lollipop um and it's such a tantalizing cover I definitely think so even the font you know I know we spent a lot of time thinking about the fonts that appear on the cover and it's just almost hypnotizing you know like yeah it's just like the the curves of the letters are hypnotizing yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, there's something about your work that, you know, our audience will hear very soon and learn when they read the book in full that has a very like handwritten, urgent feeling to it. And so I'm really glad that we went with the script typography um, because, you know, it's like no one writes faster than someone writing in script, like in pencil. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like a signature or shorthand cursive. Um, And so I'm glad that that resonated with you with the final set of options that we had. But kind of going back to like, first of all, trying my very best to impress you. um, I also would love to talk about the marriage between poetry and art, poetry and collage and your relationship and your connection between the two as we start to talk about poetry, if you're interested. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Well, you had that incredible interview in Working on Gallery, which we'll link out in the show notes that just totally captured me. And I felt just absolutely in love with everything that you said about art and poetry and yeah was there anything that you wanted to share with us about how maybe just like collage work or poetry brings forth either a truth or like yeah 
I, I don't know what I'm asking. I just want to hear you talk about art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I can certainly do that. I can certainly, certainly do that. Um, truly one of my favorite things to do. Where to even begin? I think um, what drew me to collage, right? Like I, I, you know, have been writing what feels like my whole life. And so what drew me to collage later in life, specifically digital collage, was I was interested, I think, in saying the unsayable. I was interested in saying things I didn't feel like I had language for. Yeah. Um, and that could only be expressed through color. But even sometimes, you know, color, you don't even have the palette to even describe the color that you're feeling or that you're trying to get at, right? And that can only be... It can only be expressed through even a re-rendering of a certain red through digital collage, right? So I was I was drawn to collage as a way to, yeah, to to get at things that I felt like I didn't have the language for. Um, and also simultaneously it became so integral to my poetic process because when I felt like, okay, I'm working on a poem that uses language, that uses words. <laughs> And I got stuck. I would go to collage to give myself a way to to get closer to the poem. Mm -hmm. To then, if I re-render this red, then now that I'm seeing it, what are the words that are coming up? Right. It became like a a reciprocal process where it was like the poem led me to the collage, which led me back to the poem, which led me back to the collage, which led me back to the poem. Um, mm. Yeah, and. I also feel that collage helps me think a lot about form, which, you know, maybe we'll talk more about later. But I think, again, in that reciprocal relationship, sometimes, too, I'm not only learning about, like, images or colors, but I'm also learning about how to structure or, like, stack a poem just by the fact that I can do so many weird and interesting things with Photoshop that don't come as naturally in, like, a Word doc and through text. So... That's something that has been exciting me about art. Once I was able to like articulate that that was what was happening and lean into it as a more specific, particular practice, it has opened up so much for me. It's just a, it's the tool in my toolbox, like for writer's block or for getting closer to like the heart of a poem. And I also like my, I, I enjoy doing the collages too, because, you know, I, I love poetry. I've loved poetry forever, my whole life. And I feel really grateful to be able to make poetry such a core part of my career. It sounds so dreaded. Sometimes. I'm like, oh, it's my career as well. You know, I like, cause I, I have such a struggle with it, right? Cause it's my passion. It's my love. It's, it's the thing I care so deeply mm -hmm. about. And it's also, you know, part of my career. And I think with the, the, collaging I you know sure like if somebody wants to publish a collage one day cool but it doesn't feel I, that that little part of me big part of me that feels at stake when I'm writing poems a little bit now that it's so much again part of like my life doesn't I don't have that tension when I'm doing collage and so it feels mm -hmm. like a place of respite sometimes too where I can really really be creative and I try to do the work of like you know, letting myself be really, really organic and creative with my poems. But of course, again, at this stage in life, it feels like I am thinking about at least 
in a small way where this poem fits in my catalog of poems even, you know, what kind of impact this particular piece could have. Do I see this as a poem that's just for me or that I can put out for publication, right? I'm having those conversations with the poems that I'm not having with the collages. And so it feels like a safer space to really play. Mm -hmm. And I think I need that sort of organic creativity to, again, then like, really recalibrate myself in the poems if I am leaning too much into the the professionalization of the piece rather than like the the heart of it. Oh, I, so, yeah. I love that so much. Our last episode was about poetry and the primal and mm. uh, we talked about how important wildness is in a great poem, but one of the ways to achieve that is by play. And so Part of what I love about learning new software or doing graphic design or just art that no one's really expecting <laughs> is that you do get to like play. So this sounds like this is a space for you to like really explore the capacities and all of the doors and <laughs> drawers of your mind. Um, I know I gave you such an open-ended question just now but you answered it so beautifully uh, I, I'm a fan of the poet artist but I don't think that I've heard someone give such a beautiful and open answer to their mm. hybrid loves I agree oh thank you thanks y'all I really appreciate that um I mean, it feels good to, of course, have this conversation with folks who are poets, who are artists, who can appreciate, like, holding that hybridity and, um, yeah, those relationships. And I, I hope, even if it's not art, I mean, I think that, like, poetry needs other things to thrive. I don't know if thrive is the word, but, like, we need to have other things that are poems live around right they have yes. to be in community with other things that like fuel us I guess if that makes sense and so absolutely yeah okay cool I use that that exact metaphor a lot gathering fuel mm. for, for the poetry practice for the poem itself just to hold on mm. to for later whatever it might be I feel like gathering fuel looks differently for every single poet and that's really amazing to me um I've known poets who were dancers. Uh, mm. I, I think there's just so many ways that we we can do that, even just by paying special attention to our lives as we move through them. But I I really also just love love the idea of keeping play alive and keeping a sense of like you're talking about career and some other exterior concerns that are a little more formal and practical, maybe infringing on a poetic practice. And I think that's so relatable, Mick, and something yeah. that I've thought about a lot. And I'm also really passionate about trying to preserve a space that none of those things can penetrate, that is safe for just total exploration of what I would describe as what, what I don't know. Um, there's the poem that shows that I've done my homework and that I've done my research. And then there's the poem where I'm just like kind of rioting in the unknown. And that's for me, the passion poem. And uh, it is, I think a space that we have to protect, but I also think that that's just such a beautiful practice that you have of being able to have another kind of side, side space for it where you can keep the fuel burning or, however we're using this metaphor, uh, so that the poems are, are always being tended to and, and fed. I love that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the passion poem, the passion poem, that that phrase was the one that I was like, yes, that's what it, like, you know, and like consistently like giving ourselves the fuel to do the passion poems, even if we mm -hmm. have, even if we have to, or feel that there are other poems that have different concerns or meet different needs or requirements, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. making space for the passion poems to always be there and always be present. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not also cut and dry. The poems have relationships to mm. each other and poems are fluid in their identities too and hybrid and, and can have that passion running through them even as they are academically researched or maybe um, carrying carrying other types of baggage along with them that's really important to bring into the world. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that like the idea of the collage to me is really interesting in connection to your poems because you have in your collages usually like a central image, right? Mm -hmm. And then background images or colors or textures. I feel like that's that's a really interesting idea to me in connection to the poems. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you see a formal connection there between a central image and then a lot of this other space that carries a little bit more of that unknown that that play that uh here's how i'm trying to present this image or explore this image or mm. describe it um do you feel a formal connection between the way that your collages look and the way your poems operate yeah you know as you were saying that i was you know trying to think and kind of compute this in my mind and i'm like oh yeah no that actually makes a lot of sense i definitely see that happening um even when I just think about the way that a poem sometimes organically forms for me, there is usually a central image. And then I usually write on either side of that image, you know? Yeah. And so it becomes like the background space or, you know, the accompanying lines, but there's maybe, you know, there could be a few, but I think a, typically a poem for me starts with, even as I mentioned with the title, it starts with that really central almost vivid image and then everything in the world sort of surrounds that that image in that moment and so yeah actually it's like wow that must be how my brain works because <laughs> I definitely see that in the in the collages as well yeah where there is this like a you know typically a person usually a celebrity they're the focus and everything else is just around them and even in the process of building the collage itself I usually start with that central image and then build the world around it. So they're definitely like parallel and just like the actual practice of creation. Mm -hmm. That's so fascinating. I had it not is. thought about that in particular. Me neither till just now. <laughs> so that yeah, makes me happy that that wow. resonates. Well, I think there's another layer to it, Mick, where um, something I'm really intrigued by is the way that Threesome and the Last Toyota Celica explores memory and you talked at the beginning of this recording about formative experiences um is something that the book explores and and i know that it's not presenting memory as its primary theme but i felt so many things about memory in this book and the way that it's not just you know we all know the cliches like memory fades but it does other things too i think in our brains and in our bodies and in our lives and the formative experiences are expressed in who we are now and the memories are too and they become really slippery and, and changeable and um 
I felt something interesting happening there in, in the poems and, and maybe in the collages as well, where there's like this one defined image. Mm. And I feel like a lot of memories have that. And then there's all this static space that is where we're trying in the poems or in the art, we're trying to get at what that space means or what happened or what was or why. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can't always figure it out, but I think that the process, uh, the practice of making the art and making the poem is like healing in mm. some way or helps us to reconcile ourselves with all the versions of ourselves that used to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm reading way too much into this central image idea, but it makes sense to me as like a, another representation of how memory can feel where you really only have one clear thing to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes so much sense. I think uh, with memory too, that um, I agree that there is that the, the central focus image. And then also that the poems and even the collages too give me permission to then remember as I remember it, you know? And that I think I, I was just thinking of the opening poem, The Palinode, and how even that gives space for the idea of like retraction and like that things can be fluid and that things um with the collages I think about the layering effect that things are layered that things are complex things are not static and not singular and so yeah I I think all of that is related to like the articulations of memory in the chapbook so I don't think you're reading too deep into it at all. I think that that's actually very spot on. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting me get that out. Yeah. Uh, I I got what I came for. Thank you. Um, I'm so just giddy with joy to hear you talk about your artwork. Thank you so much, Mick. Um, yes, of course. What a joy. And and the best part is that it's it's poetry as well and we've got this really mm-hmm. beautiful book mm. that has all these elements that you can find in your art as well I think this would be a gorgeous time to hear a poem before we dive into talking about poems a little bit more what do you think Mick yeah sure thing I would love that cool I'd love to read love and basketball I think this is a I think it's a it's one of my favorite poems so I would love to read it it'd be my pleasure. So, this is on page 10. Thesis, Love and Basketball as Queer Tragedy. Quarter one. On sight, a specter. Spectacular crimson. The body that begs its own question. What, if not this given name? This admirable scar. New epistemology of the tender-headed episodic dyke defiance cruel recurrence of the prettier sister maternal preference gutless dress gripped by the shoulders floating somehow now gauze wrap and kickstand and first kiss to fist to fist to fist to fist to fist to to no 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 i don't have to do what you say quarter two It must be stated plainly that 15 minutes into the film, Monica comes out. I'm a lesbian. Singular statement, 
sweeping, declarative, certain, classic, coming out, I'm, as in I am. Screen two, mother's cracked open jaw, mother mouthing, that's not funny, but isn't it? How much mirror slips the sternum to turn an inward accusation, an inversion of identity, retraction, 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 retracted light, stiff of my throat contorting around the neck maker until naked in my childhood bedroom. The boy himself is inconsequential. I make an avalanche from the fat of our mouth. It is night. Isn't this the way I woman? Isn't this the way I work and I wet for who you want me to be? Quarter three, or ode to Sidra, to this courtside chemistry, locker room gaze, lavender dream, where I fantasize your flesh a nectarine, something I'd like to split open, stick my thumbs into. Sometimes I like it when girls are mean to me, spit in my mouth, paint me red with leather and with longing. I long quite deeply here and here and here on this lonely continent of desire. Quarter four, double or nothing, when we both know just how possible it is to lose, to pull the short end of an otherwise burning branch. When I lost, I left myself tangled to your bedsheets because I wanted you to call a truth, to call it quits. To quit you, I come in that ochre and broken afternoon light to that high school album, that carnal crush, which turned up a different self. A girl regowned in evergreen lace with a propensity for hurt and wreckage, a bloody cunt, a bouquet of honey locust thorns. If we leave no other record or recording of our love, I say, let it be known that it was easy, easy, easy. I say, let it be known that we were doomed. Wow. Thanks, Beautiful. You <laughs> know, that's you. the Thank first time so I've heard you read that poem. And I'm trying to remember, Mick, if we've heard you read any of them aloud for us yet and I don't think so so mm. we asked you here just to get our own private poetry readings <laughs> yeah <laughs> is what's going on yeah anytime <laughs> I loved that thank you I've been just enamored with this poem from the beginning I guess I have to say this but I'm I'm a basketball player so I grew up as well I was young when this film came out and and watched it and loved it. So um, I loved this this thesis, <laughs> so to speak, of love and basketball as queer tragedy. And I also must say, for the listener who can't maybe read this poem right this second or see it on the page, that I'm seeing this as a new form. Mm. Quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, and quarter four. I love mm. this new basketball form. And what are we going to call it? <laughs> Ooh, I know. Oh, that's a great, oh gosh. Oh, God. I want to be cheesy and be like, can we call it like the full court press or something? But that might be too much. No, no, I like that. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, I'm glad you have a good idea for it because that works for me. Yes, I love that. But it's so inventive and, and just so fun. So 
again, going back to memory, I guess you, I assume watched this film as well when you were younger Mm -hmm. and maybe had a lot of big feelings around it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if this, you know, the thesis that the title speaks of Love and Basketball is Queer Tragedy, if that Mm -hmm. was something that you had been thinking about for a long time before you wrote this poem or something that occurred to you all of a sudden. Mm. Yeah, um, like you said, grew up watching this movie almost uh, endlessly. Like my sister obsessed with this movie, my cousin's obsessed with this movie, my mom obsessed with this movie. I mean, right, we all watch this over and over and over again. I love it. It's one of my favorite films, you know, of all time, but like over and over and over again. So, (laughs) you know, and it was so interesting because what what I noticed over the years of rewatching this film particularly with my family members, with women in my family, straight women in my family, um, there was this sort of like tenderness towards the storyline that, you know, of course, theoretically, it's supposed to be there's a happy ending, right? Like, that's how we're supposed to read it. Um, They end up together, la-di-da. Um, and so, but like the the women and girls who I was watching this movie with were always very, yeah, affectionate towards the film and its ending. And uh, they just thought it was so sweet. It was a dream come true, mm. happily ever after. And for me, I just never got that sense from the movie. You know, I wow. just, I felt like, you know, I felt that Monica was like a deeply depressed character. I felt that, and that's not to diagnose her, but I think that like, you know, Sanai Lathan, the actress who got into character by method acting, talks about like during her time recording this film, she herself was completely depressed. It was her first major film. She was trying to get into character. She was not a ball player herself. So she had to learn how to play ball, like, you know, to make it look real. You know, and so she talks about being depressed. She also goes on to date her co-star. So it's it's just a very like strange, like the weird parallels between the actress and the character. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, I had these feelings as a young person that I just was like, this is not right. This is not how this is supposed to go. There's a lot at stake here for this character. I, I noticed patterns or different things that felt similar to maybe my relationship with my mom and her relationship mm. with her mom and this desire to this tension between them, but also her deep desire to please her and um, to please her would be to be a more feminine young woman, right? Like to be a straight young woman. Mm. Um, and I think that like, for me, that, that storyline is what stood out to me in the, in the film growing up. But it wasn't until later in life when I was reading about Sanai Lathan's experience of playing Monica that I was like, oh, yeah, like this resonates. And like the fact that she used method acting to get into character, it almost felt like she was channeling some of that energy from the character that I was noticing as a child. So, you know, the thesis itself as a fully formed thesis came later in life, but I always had a sense of, yeah, this doesn't, I don't think this is the fairy tale y'all think it is, you know? Yeah, that ending, I laugh out loud as an adult now when there's a cut 
to them at Monica's basketball game, I think it is, and he's in the stands with their kids, and everybody's happy, and the music plays, and then it just yes. fades. I, I'm always like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what yes. happened? There was no resolution. It didn't make sense. Everyone was unhappy, and then boom, all of a sudden they were happy again. So I completely agree with you. The ending doesn't feel um, truthful. I had never really picked up on that scene so we have a we have a still mm -hmm. from the film in the poem in the book as well where Monica says I won't I'm a lesbian to her parents and um yeah I before seeing that in your poem had never really thought about that line to such depth so I was I was fascinated when I rewatched it to to consider that yeah I mean because I think there's a number of ways that dialogue could have been written in that scene to not use that line right yeah right? her mom is kind of saying when are you going to grow out of this tomboy phase and she says I won't I'm a lesbian you could just be like I won't I'll never change you know you don't have to say you're a lesbian and I think that goes back to my point about Right, like in that moment where Monica is feeling such teenage angst towards her mom, who's on her back about mm. being a tomboy, um, what she retorts to upset her mom is this joke, this this non-truth that she just blurts out, I'm a lesbian, right? And that irritates her mom. And so I think, again, that's like the scene where I'm like, oh, there's like, there is such tension here around the way that this character performs femininity, performs girlhood, performs womanhood, her mom's preoccupation with that. And again, like I said, for me, that felt like such a, a central storyline. And also, you know, just as I think partially as like a queer kid and then a queer person later in life, I'm like, eh, like, I don't care about this like straight storyline that's going on. Let's look at like the mother wound and let's sit yeah. there because that's my favorite thing to talk about and think about. Um, and so... Yeah, for me, again, that felt like the through line that we needed to get to. I mean, we I could talk about this all day, but like really, <laughs> uh, there's just another scene that I would highlight too with mom where, you know, Quincy's engaged, he's marrying someone else, played by Tyra Banks. And her mom's just like, you know, I always thought you would end up with Quincy, like, you know, and she kind of puts this idea in her daughter's head for then her daughter to go on and play this basketball game for their love to ruin his engagement his wedding is in two weeks you know it's just like a really it's a really preposterous premise and of course that's cinema but like you know so I'm just like oh like to me that feels like that her goal is not to be with Quincy but to please her mother to yes. get her mother's approval um so yeah uh, <laughs> yeah love it the way you render some of these ideas in the poem though we all just heard it. It's so unexpected. And there are so many genius turns of phrase. I remember going over and over the line or ode to Sidra to this courtside chemistry. Mm -hmm. And that courtside chemistry, it brought up a lot of things for me <laughs> um, um, from my youth. And it, it speaks to a kind of love, mm -hmm. I think, that almost isn't even sexualized at first at least not till later in the poem but this kind of like like other ways of envisioning love and how we maybe felt love in more organic ways as young people mm. and the different kinds of chemistry that we had with others that were defiant to the ways that we saw it portrayed perhaps in 
our parents or in straight white culture. So mm. I, I've just found like so many moments in this poem, so tender. And then of course your ending, let it be known that it was easy, easy, easy. I say, let it be known that we were doomed encapsulates so much that I think this book is doing that kind of deep longing as the world mm. is burning um, feels really, really powerful in this poem. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate all of that. Um, I think the doom piece too, is, I mean, it's hyperbolic, but then it's not, but then it's like, you know, the, the tragedy, right? Like this is, we are doomed. Mm. Yeah. And I just appreciate your point about the language of the poem. <laughs> Another note that I will just quickly add is that like, you know, part of what happens in the first quarter and what we see is that there's this, what I, where I also made a connection was that, you know, Quincy teases Monica, he bullies her, he's a little bit aggressive towards her, and we're supposed to internalize that as, well, that means he likes you, right? Mm -hmm. And then the same thing happens between Monica and Sidra, so then I didn't, how, how do we then interpret that, right? And then so that's, and I think that that was one of the things that also, like, stood out to me in the film, like, her relationships with, with other women that were tangential to her. It's a film that I, I don't think would pass the Bechdel test, like the film Bechdel test, because it's, it's primarily mm -hmm. focused at all time. Besides talking about basketball, it's mostly talking about these relationships, but um, when the women are talking. And I I think that's fascinating. I think sometimes, too, like the fragmenting of the language is also speaking a little bit to the piece about memory, because I'm... I think in the poem, I'm writing from a an adult present day perspective, of course, mm -hmm. but also trying to get at my memories of watching the film for the first time, for the second time, for the third time at, you know, eight years old, nine years old, ten, like quite young, actually, I saw the film. Um, and throughout my youth, the memories of like, even that opening scene on site of Spectre, right? Like where she just kind of like, you know, emerges. And is genderless to the boys. The boys don't, the boys can't tell that she's a girl, especially because she can ball. I think even that initial scene to me as a queer child was like, oh, like gender actually doesn't have to look a particular way. There are a number of ways to do this thing. So, yeah. The film, um, there's a lot of cringy moments around um, gender presentation mm -hmm. and femininity, but it does a great job, I think, of presenting Monica as a total stunning beauty in her basketball uniform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I was just gonna say, to wrap this up, and to uh, to think on your point, like the grace and beauty that she has as a basketball player mm. and the sort of like silkiness of her movements in those scenes compared to like the other moments. I, I hope that in some ways the poem kind of, I don't know if it does now that I'm thinking about it, but I hope the poem kind of replicates that maybe in some ways that, the things that feel most attached to basketball and the most authentic, maybe even like quarter three, which you you mentioned some of the language there, Claire, um, that that there is a a sort of flow to that that feels more natural and organic than maybe other moments. But I don't know. But yeah, mm -hmm. something I'm thinking about. Absolutely. You have all the live grace of Monica's uh, courtside yeah. movements in this poem. Let me just give you that compliment. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry for all the nerding out on basketball stuff. I love to listen to it all, especially as someone who um, just doesn't know 
a single thing about basketball somehow. So, <laughs> um, moving on to so film is obviously a guiding light, um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of music in this book. There's even a special playlist that if you order is slid into your package um, that Mick curated for you. Um, but yeah, you there's a few of your poems that feature uh, specific musical celebrities. Um, there's the Frank Ocean poem. There's uh, obviously a lot of reference to musical celebrities in your collage work. Um, yeah, did you want to talk about uh, your relationship to music and poetry? Is that too broad of a scope? I can narrow it down here. <laughs> yeah, no, I can certainly talk about that. And if you have like specific questions, I'd love to answer them. But yeah, I can talk about that a little bit from there. And hopefully we'll get to hear you read your Frank Ocean poem from the book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. That sounds good to me. Um, yeah, I love music. I really do. And I mean, I say I love music. <laughs> I'm kind of like, I love music, but I love the music that I already know. Like, I'm always open to listening to new, new music, but I feel very much like I'm always, uh, I listen to a lot of, at least the same artists, right? It's very like particular playlists for me. But anywho, that being said, I do love music and I feel very deeply inspired by and connected to the artist who I love. Um, something that I'm even thinking about with the Frank Ocean piece and also even love in basketball around form is just is that I feel inspired by the form of the music of the song, especially when I'm writing a poem that's responding to a song. Like I feel that yeah, like the song's form and the song's identity is really important to me. And that thinking about crafting a poem about a song, especially, or even an artist, like I, I think a lot about what the artist does in their own work and how that needs to be connected to or appear somehow in the poem to make those connections more salient, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I also think like similar to digital collage that um, I don't make music, but being able to engage with music as a, a, an art form that is different from, but similar to poetry is just really magical. And I think in curating the playlist, um, I was thinking about songs that I was listening to as I worked on many of these poems um, and also songs that just like emotively uh, align <laughs> with the collection and I started the playlist with Nina Simone's song I put a spell on you which I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about the cover and the hypnotizing effect of it and I think the playlist kind of similarly starts us off with this sort of hypnotizing effect um mm -hmm. which I hope also comes through in the book especially after the prologue piece but in the impulsive means by the body there's sort of like an also hypnotizing effect there and using playlists like curating playlists to also help me think about structure of the book that's mm, something I yes. wanted to just quickly highlight that like in organizing this book and and in organizing other 
work that I've worked on, I think that like sometimes it has been helpful for me to make um these little mixtapes that I make, these little 10 song mixtapes that help me think about like what I'm trying to do emotively in the text and using music, especially like the sonic quality of music to sort of chart that out and think about organization. Because if I flip a playlist on its head, it's a different playlist that tells a different story. And so like, yeah, using, having again, that sort of reciprocal relationship, like how is that happening here? And how can I even replicate that maybe in a book, if that makes sense? Oh, yes. That, I just, I just love the way that you, you see all art kind of on the same field um, Mm -hmm. and that they're trying to achieve the same things, whether it's film or music or poetry, like I feel like you can really take the core element of what is great art and bring it to yourself or appreciate it um, in a way that, yeah, I just, I don't hear other people talk about uh, art this way. And and so it is really thrilling to me because this is, it's, you, you know, it's, going to be so helpful to our listeners but it's also just so nourishing for me and I'm sure Claire to hear um but I do love like the way that you you're thinking about the playlist that you made for your audience um because like a great collection of poetry is it should feel like a great album like it should take you on a journey and this is why like you don't shuffle a good album mm-hmm. when you're in the car that's a crime <laughs> a good collection of poetry should you have to read each page as it comes instead yeah. of like hopping around you've got to you've got to place the ballad where the ballad goes right mm-hmm. i think that is so translatable to poetry and and this book Mick, you have an intro you have an introductory poem mm-hmm. um So it really does have that album quality. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, I feel so just inspired too by the way that artists put together their their albums. And we're going to turn to Frank Ocean soon. And I think even just thinking about the Blonde album itself and this particular poem that's responding to a very short interlude in the album, I think, and the album as a whole just also helped me think about, yeah, structure itself and like, where to start really specifically emotionally like where to start um and where to go next energetically too in the text yeah I love I love music and you're right and I I do really feel like all of these art forms are connected and we can learn so much when we deeply engage with them beautifully said shall we hear another poem yeah sure I will read the Frank Ocean poem I can talk this really briefly about it you know for our listeners at the end of the book there's a note section uh, which talks a little bit about the origins of this particular piece and some of the other poems but what I will just add about this is that this is a response to a live performance uh, that Frank Ocean does that I watched on YouTube I am like a person, like, I love music so much and I love live performance so much that I will watch the grainiest, like, worst, like, YouTube videos of live performances if that's all that's accessible to me. Um, But luckily, there's a couple of actually pretty decent uh, recordings of this performance. But in uh, his performance of Good Guy, which, again, a short little interlude in his Blonde album, when he's on stage, he's singing and he forgets 
this line, which is, here's to the gay bar you took me to. It's the only place on his album where he uses the word gay, bisexual, anything queer, right? Um, and most of us know, you know, Frank Ocean is, a, is out as a bisexual person. And so it's the only place in the album where he's making like this really direct mention to queerness. When he's on stage, he forgets this line. He forgets the line completely. Um, and I was fascinated and fixated on this moment for so long. And what I will just lastly add is that the form of this poem, like I was saying, felt so inspired by the form of the interlude where he kind of is cutting himself off, like his sentences are unfinished. It kind of goes from singing to, to conversation. So it's like a really weird thing. And so I tried to borrow some of that as I wrote this poem. So that's all I'll say there. Annotation. Frank Ocean performs Good Guy live at Exposition Park, Los Angeles, 2017. Look. A steal of memory might reveal the shame, surrender itself to the scene. Hell's Kitchen, bar backlit in electric indigo, boy cut down the chest, an aftermath of blood trailing to his navel, gumdrop for ball sack, hard blue jewel of flesh glinting. A movie still, your neck knuckled auric, mouth grilled gems, scotch wet, glistening, fade framing your face, throat hard pressed against the base, it's boom, the bar covered in cloud smoke, the cloud smoke tinged by your silk. I, first time, and my hair wore red, learned the word for the fear of forgetting or being forgotten, a thazagoraphobia, another boy and cut off short, fingernailed in the bathroom stall, indulgence, the sin of God, my mouth in some stranger's mouth, necessary. On stage, I speculate my desire, my inculcable fear when an unremarkable throat, lost boy lament, your late night lover becoming both the heedless smoke and the dark grain that dust when I was a child, I would wash my own mouth with soap if I felt like I had told a lie. Stick a silver spoon into flame and burn the roof of it if I had unduly cursed the love. Now this is how I forgive and apologize, reward and punish. If a scar is not a wound, how else to explain this fresh blood, the unfolding familiar pain? Wow. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meg. Mm. This poem has such a weight mm. to it. Um, the weight of shame and fear, I think, are, mm -hmm. are really seamlessly intertwined with desire in this poem and, and memory as well, to circle back to all of our themes. And I feel like when we're describing this book to people, we talk about all this fiery passion. And, and mm, part of that mm. is just the sense we have of you as a poet. Mm. A lot of that does come from the poems, of course, themselves. 
and what they're doing. But I think we would be remiss not to note that there is a ton of um, the darker side of those of those beautiful fiery feelings, the shadow side, if you will, in the book as well. And and this poem definitely puts mm. that into its contemplation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I um, I'm a huge Aaliyah fan, and she would always talk about uh, her connection with the darkness. She would just say, "I'm connected to the darkness. I'm connected to the dark side," and I definitely mm. feel that way. Um, and I, yeah, I hope that that's what the book is holding. Really, that the collection is holding that desire can be beautiful and pleasurable and intimate and loving and careful and tender. And there's also like perhaps these yeah, these levels of shame, these levels of even self-deception, self-shame, of course. Um, yeah, dark, darkness. <laughs> yeah, darkness um, here as we sit at the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this beautiful connection between human beings happening mm-hmm. in this poem, in the present and in memory. And I feel like that's where desire as a a thing that happens inside the body of an individual person becomes, I don't know what the right word is. You have a really interesting epigraph at the beginning of the book about perversion, and I would love to talk about that Mm. word because I want to use it, but I don't want it to be connotated the way that it normally is. I know. Mm-hmm. But this perversion that happens when the two desires meet and the complicated, really difficult ways that we can have this beautiful, wonderful, intimate, tender connection with people that often isn't all of those things or isn't only those things. It, it has so many more layers of complication and it's a tangle. Yeah. <laughs> we become really tangled, I think, mm-hmm. together um, physically and emotionally. So. Um, yeah, we can talk about the I quote if you yeah. want. Um, but I just was thinking about that as we were discussing this. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, similar to you, Claire, like when I use the word perversion, I'm like, yes, the connotation, but like, no, not those connotations, right? But like in kind of a way too, because it's like, yeah, the poems are certainly about perversion or a subversion of of the love poem, I think, mm. in different ways. And yeah, in that in that opening epigraph where the poet I is saying that she only writes love poems if they're about the perversion of love. And then the extended part of that quote is, you know, it'd be too sentimental if you just wrote about love. And so I love the following part of that quote, which folks will see in the notes section. But it would be too sentimental, so interesting, because I do think that the poems, these poems, my poems are so sentient as well, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I also think something that you were saying made me also think about desire as its own character in the collection, Mm -hmm. um, that it has its own spirit, its own its own desire has its own desires and motivations and concerns, right? And so I think that, like, even in this poem, the Frank Ocean piece, there's a way that desire as this almost like darkness maybe in this particular piece is sitting alongside of Frank in this way, right? And maybe it's not desire, maybe it's shame. But I think that maybe what I'm saying is that the emotions for me, the feelings feelings for me generally speaking I guess are personified right like they take on their own life 
Um, and so I think that's happening in the poems for sure too. And we see Claire, you've kind of talked about like, yeah, the things that are happening sort of in the body. And then I'm also thinking about what if we, what if we were sitting across the table from our desires mm -hmm. or like in this particular scene with Frank Ocean is his shame sitting right there next to him on the stage. Right. And is that what causes this sort of steal of memory and yeah, emotions as catalysts for actions. I mean, I think that's biology, but like, or like <laughs> the way that things just work generally, but like, yeah, trying to get closer to that, like getting closer to the, humanness of an emotion I guess mm -hmm. yeah I always feel like such a little robot when I say things like this but like how do we express our emotions <laughs> it is a question how are we allowed to how can we do it in ways that mm -hmm. others find perverted or subversive um it's not an easy question to answer we might feel the answer in ourselves and kind of know in our primal selves, how we could do it. But the way we're able to is a whole other matter. I love the idea of the emotions personified. And I think yeah. we could do a close read of a lot of these poems and find yeah. and find evidence of that. Yeah, we, we are just so lucky that we get to work with you and that your poems are going to be out in the world and read by many. Um, you just have so much depth with language with emotion um bringing in such a incredible variation of art um and this poem really captures that depth and variation so beautifully yeah. so voluminous yeah. that's my word for you Mick <laughs> yes I love that I love that so much Thank you so much. And truly, you know, likewise, and I feel that y'all and host is the perfect place to hold this work. You know what I mean? Like I have so much trust in both of you and so much gratitude for both of you for the way that you've ushered this work into the world. Right. And I think that like, you know, as much as you see in this chapbook, it would take the skills and the vision and the talent and the care that you all have to to have it be realized in this way so truly likewise and I'm so again grateful for you both um and yeah for for this book it's so amazing you know I know I wrote it but I'm like <laughs> it is so amazing, amazing. it so is amazing yeah. yeah you can say that <laughs> thank yeah. you so much Mick that was yeah. so thoughtful of course so let's say someone reads this book mm -hmm. and they want more more than the notes provide mm -hmm. would there be a few titles that you think would be essential read and lists that are in like communion or conversation mm -hmm. with this collection yeah certainly okay um well I would say I would say Sabia Hartman's book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, um, which is a great, beautiful, fantastic archival text that really just breaks apart the way we tell stories and do archive research and document our experiences, uh, particularly as it says here in the subtitle, riotous Black Girls, Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals. So definitely a place that I would send folks to. 
in terms of poetry, oh gosh, I, you know, feel so lucky to be writing at the same time as so many people. It's incredible. Okay. For today, I, I don't even know. Okay. I think <laughs> oh, it's so hard to say. There's so much. Okay. I'm going to say just maybe what I've been reading lately, always Morgan Parker. Mm. I think reading any of Morgan Parker's work would be connected to the work that I'm trying to do. I want to even just uphold musicians, right? Because I'm like thinking of books, but I would also even say Janelle Monet's album, Age of Pleasure, mm. I think is a really critical text for us to even turn to to understand some of uh, the sexier things that are happening in this collection. And maybe a film because you've got a book, an album. I would say Michaela Cole's show, I May Destroy You, is one of my favorite shows ever, ever, ever. But I think really just the way that it, that she, Michaela Cole, and like the show itself narrate memory, narrate being a survivor, right? Like, and think about like community and friendships as critical to to survival like all of it I would I would say I may destroy you yes the, the prompt to go for a film led me to the right place so yeah, yeah. beautiful yeah I'm gonna watch that yeah I haven't seen it so good it's on HBO but you know I hope folks can get access to it because it's the, it's an interpretation of her real experiences as a young Black person working on her show on Netflix, Chewing Gum. So it's it's her real experiences sort of translated into this show format. So yeah, can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Wow. Can't recommend it enough. Amazing. Yeah. Great, Rex. We'll obviously link them all in the show notes and dig into wow. them ourselves. Yeah. The question we like to ask at the end of the show is... Since this is a new book and this is your book, we'd love to hear from you if you had a specific setting or a specific circumstance or a way in which this book could be best received. So that could be a place, a time of day, accompanying food and beverages. If you could describe the perfect way to encounter this book for our listeners and readers, how would you describe that? Yes. Oh, I love this question because I'm I'm all about a vibe. So this is a great question. <laughs> okay, I can give a couple. Um, but I would say the best place to enjoy this book, I would say I wrote a lot of the book from my bed. So I would say being in your bed comfortably wrapped up with like a nice cozy blanket. For my friends who like weighted blankets, they are my favorite. So maybe your weighted blanket or something else that brings you comfort, you know, maybe lighting a candle or some incense if you feel so inclined. I mean, I think I can say this, but I mean, I like to smoke weed. So like I would probably light a joint and enjoy a joint. But if you don't do that, that's okay. I would maybe even recommend doing some essential oils or like, Mm. you know, something, something sort of sensory. Mm-hmm. to to get you sort of like settled into the book because it is it's a circus in its own sort of way so like you know I think you yourself should be sort of comfortable and calm yeah low light but enough light so that you're not straining your eyes and um probably wearing something cozy too but maybe um if you want to feel a little fabulous maybe with a little lipstick on yes oh I love that <laughs> yes <laughs> I love the idea of putting lipstick on 
to read a book. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect for this book. Yes. Yes. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I think that would be my setting. That's beautiful. I love that answer. Perfect answer. I imagined kind of a um, a bedroom that looks like, you know, like in the early millennium Disney Channel, like those kids would have the best bedrooms where mm-hmm. they're just mm-hmm. like so much fun. So I know, like gorgeous built-ins, like nice little like reading nook, like a desk yeah. with their computer, <laughs> a beanbag chair, yes, a walk-in yeah. closet. Yes, that room. You can imagine yourself there, and it definitely is the space. Like that sort of the energy, at least that that room brings, mm. is certainly the space you want to be in. Such a good answer. Um, well, you'll be hearing this just in time to. Join us for the virtual launch party, which is going to be on Saturday, October 21st, 6 p.m. Texas time, so Central, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And we'll be live streaming to the Host Publications YouTube channel. Um, And we'll be featuring, obviously, M. Mick Powell and Brittany Rogers, who wrote the introduction, and poet Jay Nichelle. So it's going to be such a riot. Um, yeah. And if you miss miss out, um, it's likely that we'll continue to host it on our YouTube channel for you to return to, um, given that everyone grants their permission. So here's to hoping. Um, but thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful and beautiful ride with our forthcoming poet, and Mick Powell. It's been such a joy to have you, Mick. Yeah. Oh my God. Really, my heart is so full. Truly can't express it enough. Thank you both for having me. Thank you for letting me talk about the poems and loving basketball and all of it. Um, Yeah, this is so special. It was such a delight. And we love your book so much. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, everyone. Yay. Cheers. Cheers.